Welcome to the Digital News Report 2020, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I'm Federica Cherubini. Man, the bombers are afraid of a fight. Peace hurts business and that ain't right. How do I know? In every episode, we dive deep into one of the aspects covered by Auna Our Report, the most comprehensive piece of research on news consumption worldwide. I'm the head of leadership development at the Institute, and for this podcast, I'm joined by the authors of the report. Our guest today is Nick Newman, um, from whom we um, heard um, at the first, in the first episode about the main findings of the report, um, who's the lead author of the report and also works with media companies on digital strategy. With Nick today, we look at what the report tells us about how publishers can create more loyalty and, and habit. And this is likely to be one of the key challenges um, for publishers over the next few years, as many news organizations focus more on business models that involve reader payment rather than advertising, and for which therefore developing trust and deeper engagement with the audiences is going to be really critical. And Nick, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be back. For context, the Digital News Report is the most comprehensive comparative report on news consumption in the world, based on data collected by an online survey of more than 80,000 people in 40 markets. The bulk of this report is based on data collected in January and February, just before the coronavirus hit many of these countries, but it also draws on updated surveys in April at the height of the lockdown. The report is an essential guide for any senior media executive, but also for anyone willing to learn more about the news ecosystem today. So Nick, I started by saying how more and more critical it will be for news media to manage to create digital products um, in which the audience can develop a deep relationship and and habitual um, behavior. But maybe first, can you remind us about the context of our current media landscape and what main changes we've seen in the past years? Right. I I think we're in the middle of uh, a shift and that shift is being accelerated by the coronavirus crisis. So digital media was primarily in terms of the business model, it was about uh, selling advertisers, mass audience, selling scale. It was all about reach. It was all about numbers. But over the last few years, it's been harder to make money out of digital ads for various reasons. You know, there's some intermediaries, there's the big platforms. And that now has been compounded by the coronavirus crisis, which means we're sort of heading into a recession and marketing budgets are being scaled back. So the focus is really switching now to how you can make money more directly by serving or super serving loyal readers. So sort of simplistically, we're moving from from reach, if you like, to deeper engagement. And so the metrics are changing, the business models are changing. And so does it mean that the business models now is a a fully paid business model, is a shift to a fully paid business model? I mean, yes, but I think that also applies to, to advertising. You know, even media companies that are going to be supported by advertising need to change what they're doing so there's been a number of sort of changes in privacy regulations recently which means that you know you can't rely on these external um, uh, cookies pieces of code put onto your computer that then serve you up relevant advertising you actually need to get permission from your readers to serve you ads so again it comes back to trust it comes back to building relationships so you get permission to show personalized ads so i think um i think whether you're you know subscription or whether you're ad supported and even if you're ad supported you're going to need additional revenue streams and those revenue streams 
are going to require getting to know people, uh, you know, events, having email addresses that you can know more about people's interests. So I, I think this is, this is going to apply to all business models. And for publisher in, in terms of content, what does this mean? I think fundamentally it means more distinctive content that is valuable to uh, particular groups of people. You can't anymore just produce the same content as everyone else and hope to be found during search and expect to make sufficient money that way. Um, instead, I think publishers will be thinking, how can we be different? How can we be distinctive? Which audience are we going to go for? How can we develop a sort of a deeper set of content around that? So it might be politics, it might be the environment, it might be around you know, local news or your local football team, it could be anything really. And then you sort of develop uh, all kinds of digital formats and content around that. And, and what kind of, uh, of products are we talking about? Well, that, 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 that's the key question, really. You know, so, so digital has been about websites and apps and front pages. But I think in the future, it's going to be about something much more than that. So websites will still be part of it, um, but it will be things like um, podcasts, videos, long reads, um, maybe physical events as well. The New York Times is investing a lot in sort of different entertainment things like puzzles, cooking, and so these are things which can really engage people very deeply. And then I think there's another set of things, which is about how do you attract people to those things regularly? So this is where things like mobile alerts or email comes in, because those are the things that get you coming back more frequently. So habits kind of a mixture of the engagement aspect. And then how do you remind people on the mobile phones or in the, in the way people live their lives that you're still there and that you have something valuable for them? And in the digital news report, you specifically look at two of these um, products, um, email newsletters and, and podcast. And, and if we start with email newsletters, you know, email newsletters are not really a new shiny thing. They, but Definitely in not. recent <laughs> years, um, they've been much more relevant for publishers, um, especially for those who are managed to turn them into real editorial products and curated. And their newsletters have been proving increasingly valuable to publishers looking to build those strong relationships that you were talking about. Can you tell us a bit more about um, how um, email newsletter consumption is widespread across the world? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's not it's not a mass thing. Email is not a, a sort of secret source. It's not a silver bullet, but it 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 definitely is something that engages people and brings people back regularly. Uh, what we found was, you know, somewhere around um, between one in five, one in six across in most countries are, are are getting one email newsletter. Many people are getting, on average, people are getting four different email news um, letters in their inbox, and it kind of varies from you know, Belgium, for some reason, seems to be the world leader in, in, uh, in email. United States, uh, 20%, 21%. Uh, and then right down to sort of UK, where only about 9% are, are getting email. So sometimes, you know, in some countries, there's more supply. And, uh, and, and sometimes um, it, it's about, um, you know, the other things that are, that are on offer. Um, and people broadly are reading. So uh, about half of those people say they read most of their of their email newsletters. And they're kind of a, a really interesting group of people for publishers, because they are, they have a higher interest in news, they're more likely to subscribe to news. So this is a, a, a and they, yeah, so, so this is a group that publishers really want to engage more regularly. Um, 
so e email is, and, and the other thing about email, I think, which is interesting, you mentioned this, is the sort of curation aspect. So um, what we've seen in the last few years is more of these daily updates, sometimes then in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon. And we've seen publishers putting more editorial curation effort into them. So quite often they have a personality. Uh, David Leonhardt from the New York Times has just been appointed as a sort of host or anchor of that podcast, which is such an interesting terminology because it's, it's essentially a little bit like a television anchor guiding you through the news of the day. And this kind of personal touch is, I think, something that, that increasingly is going to be important for publishers if they're to build those relationships. Many publishers, as you mentioned, have several different um, offers in terms of newsletter. Do we have any data on how many emails is too many emails? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's some people who are just super interested in news and have, you know, we found, uh, you know, some people who have more than 10 different uh, emails from different providers. So I don't think there's a simple answer to that. And many people will be getting some daily updates, but then they're also maybe getting one for work or they're getting one around their passions. Uh, so, I mean, I, speaking anecdotally about my own experience, uh, I get sort of two or three of these daily updates, um, but then I get, um, I'm a big sort of sport and football fan, and I get one from The Athletic, which is a, a subscription publication. And um, so that kind of comes once every week or maybe once every two, three days. So I think, you know, people are kind of finding it as this really sort of convenient way in which they can combine the general news, but also really drill down into something that really matters to them. You mentioned different formats and, and you know, as, as we said at the beginning, curation um, is, is such a, as a prominent aspect, especially because we've seen in recent years that we moved from an email that is basically just a collection of links, whether at the beginning right. of the day, in, in much more a, a product, as we said. So even with the emergence of like roles of newsletter editors and, and anchors and people dedicated. Um, of all of these different formats, have you seen that there is one which is most popular? One format of email? Um, yes. Um, the, yeah, the, the daily news update. And so sometimes these are general, but it's essentially speaking to that need that you have at the beginning of the day. Okay, brief me. Give me everything I need to know. Give me a package of news. Uh, so the New York Times one that I mentioned uh, has 17 million subscribers now. Uh, so, and uh, the open rates, you know, the New York Times won't talk about, but it's, you know, they're, they're higher than industry average. So they talk about this now as one of the main ways in which people access their journalism. So the front page of the website is still important, but this is a huge audience. And so that idea of, of, of curating it is incredibly important. And then beyond that, you have very specialist, um, you know, there's so many different types of newsletters now where people are doing uh, roundups of, uh, you know, long news or in a particular niche um, and really sort of building that knowledge over time. And quite often these are curated by somebody who really knows a lot about the subject. Which kind of brings me to ask, um, what about monetizing email newsletter? Yeah, I mean, most email news newsletters, I think, have, have a, 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 we talked earlier about the sort of the change of business models. And as more publishers are moving towards subscription, email plays two roles, really. So one is trying to attract new subscribers, people who don't know the publication. So the first thing they try and get you to do quite often, often via Facebook or whatever, is to give you an email address, sign up to a newsletter. 
and then you get sort of free news for a while and then you've got the email address and so you can start to build a campaign where you can encourage them to subscribe or to try other products as part of this sort of journey towards subscription. So that's one aim. The second one is how do you um, increase the engagement of people who are already subscribed? And so that may be just reminding them of what's available. Um, but it's also uh, for some publications like, like the um, Financial Times, for example, the email newsletters is a core part of the subscription product. So in particular niche areas of finance, you have the website, but you also have additional value of the, of the newsletter. And so it's part of the paid offering, essentially. And I think that's what we're seeing with a whole load of, uh, of different products uh, to make you know, to, to reduce churn for publishers, to increase the value. The bundle is not just the website anymore. It's newsletters, it's podcasts, it's a whole range of other things that, that you can add into that package to stop people leaving you. The other product you um, look at it in, in the report um, is podcast. Um, what can you tell us about the commonalities and differences with um, email as a product? Uh, well, we're just talking about business models there, and it's, it's very similar. So um, a little bit like email, publishers like the New York Times are using the podcast essentially as a way of attracting people who aren't existing subscribers. So it's like a marketing tool. So they're putting it out there. Um, they're attracting a really big audience for it. It's about 2 million a day now. And then they put messages into the podcast saying, you know, this is a showcase of all of our journalism. Why don't you subscribe? Or here's a special offer to you. The Economist does this as well. Um, the Guardian, you know, why don't you donate after you've listened to something that's really valuable to them? So in some senses, it's a kind of a lost leader to try and attract that next generation of subscribers or people who are going to donate. Uh, and in other cases, it's about providing more value to existing users of your product and your brands so that you're more likely to stay and that you're coming back regularly. So this idea of habit, you know, that you come back every day for that morning update, in this case, in audio with podcasts or via email or both. Um, so, so those are some, some of the, the other, the other thing I suppose, um, Federica is the uh, is is just that idea of editorial curation. So in the same way as we're seeing daily emails which are hosted, then the whole idea of a daily news podcast is something that is hosted, and you have this host that you get to know, and you're building a relationship over time. So I think that that would also be the 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 commonality and the difference. I suppose is podcast is much more of a time based engagement product. So you're spending 25 minutes a day with the email. It may be a shorter period of time. And to that point, in the past, I mean, before coronavirus, um, it was a strong association in some cases with consuming podcasts during commute um, or, or journeys. Um, now that we are all, uh, almost all um, locked down at home, uh, in lockdown at home, what impact um, have we seen on, on podcast consumption? That is very hard to tell because there's no sort of standard metrics uh, or places you can go to see what's going on. But, um, you know, from the research that, that, that we've done and talking to publishers, um, there was definitely a bit of a hit. So that, that morning commute, which was a real peak for podcasts, that's kind of gone. It's flattened. So we're seeing more usage through, through the day. So it's kind of flattened out. Uh, some, uh, some, uh, metrics that I've looked at suggest that podcast use has gone down and it's certainly gone down for certain types of content like sport because there was no sport being played 
Uh, in news, uh, that seems to be the category that's held up the best. So a number of news publishers I've talked to said that actually their podcasts were stable or had increased during that time. And that's partly because you know, you've got that huge interest in the coronavirus story and there was a lot of podcasts, pop-up podcasts on coronavirus, but also some of the daily news podcasts that were really just using that to, to talk about coronavirus. So I think we've got metrics moving in kind of both directions. Uh, but I do think that ultimately it's going to come back and audio is going to be an incredibly important part of publisher strategies going forward. Do we have any data about um, what type of group of audience um, appeals um, like consume podcast? Yeah, it's, and it's very different from email. So email older, podcast younger. About a half of all of podcast listening in a country like the UK is with under 35s. Uh, and, you know, completely opposite from radio, which is mainly over 45s who are listening to radio. So this is really getting the audio medium to that, that, that younger group of people. And the other thing is that the, they are listening and engaging at a deep level. So, you know, the conventional view of millennials is that they, you know, they're just skimming over stuff. They're not really engaging deeply with things, but it's, I mean, it's not true anyway, but it's certainly not true with audio where, where we see, um, uh, as I say, younger audiences and listening for, for long periods of time. So that engagement is there. That's why it matters. In our survey, we found that 50% of people uh, who listen to podcasts said it gave them a deeper understanding of complex issues and i think that's one reason why ultimately going back to the pay question podcasts are going to be something that not only engages new people but also is something that people value enough to pay for as part of a package beyond email and podcast are there any other formats a publisher should um, focus on to um, create that loyalty and that habit i think that i mean obviously uh, as I mentioned before, I think you've got, you've got to distinguish formats that engage people and that people are going to spend time with. And so I, I would put in that category, um, uh, obviously podcasts, um, video, I think is interesting. You know, we're going to have more engaging video formats again. Again, it's really interesting to see the New York Times investing in, in video, short form, longer form documentaries, again, because it's time-based. Um, games, news games, potentially events, physical events, um, webinars, uh, which we've seen a huge explosion of webinars with the coronavirus. Again, these are ways in which you can get people to spend time with you. Uh, you can scale them more easily than physical events. I think these are, these are interesting. And then you've got the, uh, the building of habit through reminders. So emails, obviously that's part of what email does, mobile notifications. But if you can get people to download your app in the first place, you have to give them permission to do that. Once you've done that, you can use mobile notifications to get people back again and again. And that's, that's obviously a key driver for many publishers. So I think there's lots of potential. I think the tricky thing is that publishers up until now have not been focusing on these sort of deep engagements so much as general reach. And I think that's what needs to change. And I think we'll have a lot more innovation in this area. How far should publishers go in terms of not overstretching that relationship and, and, and the deep engagement? I don't think you can go far enough in deepening the engagement. I think that's what it's going to be all about for, for, for most publishers. There are exceptions to that. You know, you're still going to have public service broadcasters trying to do the full service thing. But in terms of, of making money, in terms of sustainable future for, for publishing, it's all about providing that deep value 
to smaller groups of people in a more personalized way. Yes, albeit within a wider umbrella where you may be tackling, you know, a, a number of key areas. And so this is all about getting to know your audience better. It's about building relationships with those audiences over time. And it's a complete change from where we've been in terms of how digital media has operated up until now. Nick, thanks for joining us. And to you for listening to our fourth episode of the Digital News Report 2020. In the next episode, we'll talk about how journalists cover climate change. If you missed the first three episodes where we look at the main findings of the report, uh, the future local news and why and how people pay for online news, um, you can find them on our podcast channels on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Make sure to follow the channel so you don't miss our next episodes. You can find a full report online on digitalnewsreport.org. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio at RISJ underscore Oxford or on our homepage. We'll be back next week with our fifth episode. Thank you. Pick up a copy anytime you choose. Seven little pennies in the newsboy's hand. And you ride right along to Never Never Land.